I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. Nothing in Robbie Demlin's life could have prepared her for that day. Not growing up in South Africa under apartheid, not her immigration to Israel in 1967, nor any other character-forging event throughout her life. A mother is not meant to bear the death of her own child. But what is meant to be is not always what ends up happening. Robbie's son David was shot by a Palestinian sniper in March of 2002. But from the endless grief and sorrow, Robbie chose to re-emerge with a new purpose in life. Counting from 1860, 23,645 Israelis have lost their lives in wars or terror attacks. Every year, on the National Memorial Day, around 1.5 million Israelis, almost 19% of Israel's population, visit the cemeteries to remember their lost loved ones. But recently, on the National Memorial Day, there's another event that catches public attention, the Alternative Memorial Ceremony, conducted by the Parent Circle Families Forum, in which both Israeli and Palestinian families who lost their loved ones to war or terror unite in their grief. The controversy in Israeli society around these ceremonies and around the forum's agenda in general is vigorous. Nevertheless, the organization that has more than 600 families as members, both Israeli and Palestinian, continues its struggle to end the violence. Robbie Demlin is the forum's spokesman, and she's here today to talk about her personal story, about her son David, and about the Parent Circle Families Forum, which became her life's purpose. Before we get to the episode today, guys, let me tell you about our friends over at the University of Hamburg. They're holding the first international robotics camp for girls. Now, this is amazing because, as we know, there aren't many women in these fields, STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, math. And that's for no good reason because women have a lot to offer to these fields. Now, the other problem is that girls who are looking to pursue their dreams and pursue their interests in these fields have no one to look up to. So the International Robotics Camp for girls is giving them exactly that opportunity. One, to come to a camp and actually pursue their interests and to build a freaking robot. And the other thing is to meet women, leading figures from the fields of uh, technology and to actually have these role models. A lot of these women are actually going to be Israeli and the camp is looking to bring girls from Israel. They're actually going to have a booth um, at the new tech convention uh, in Tel Aviv. It's New Tech 2018 from May 29th to the 30th. So you can go there and actually learn about the camp and uh, speak to someone from the camp to understand, you know, wh- what it's going to take to send your girl there. So if you have a girl who's interested or if you know anybody who might be interested or might have a kid who's interested, spread the word to njb.com slash robot. Visit to njb.com slash robot. That'll redirect you to their site. Check it out, guys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. So thank you for inviting me. And I think because you spoke about Memorial Day, um, it might be appropriate if I read you what I wrote to David on Memorial Day. We'd love sure. David, my beloved, not a day goes by without your haunting smile that touches my very being. They all told me the day you died that it is terrible now but you will learn to live with this pain next to you. In a way, that's true, 
but still I guess the hole in my heart will never heal. I miss going with you to concerts, cooking and movies, and even listening to endless philosophical questions on Heidegger, etc. I miss you on the holidays when you invited friends who did not speak to their parents to endless meals. Your mother was always a fixer, but this pain I cannot fix. I wonder what you would think of the course my life has taken since you were killed on that terrible day. I knew almost immediately that I wanted to do something to prevent other mothers, both Israeli and Palestinian, from suffering this endless ache. Who would have imagined that I would stand up before thousands and thousands of people in a quest to stop the violence and to look for an end to this conflict which has touched so many homes in both societies? I wanted to commemorate your name with something to do with education, and so I chose to join the Parents Circle Families Forum, a group of Israeli and Palestinian bereaved families who chose a path of reconciliation rather than revenge. I have told your story to people all over the world, some very famous and some simple and loving, and I promise even though you are no longer here, you still manage to inspire and to make a difference. To quote you, lots of love, Ma. That's, it's touching, it's sad, it's, um, I mean, I can't imagine the, um, the pain that, you know, you go through when something like that happens. It's just, it's so unnatural to have to, you know, bear that kind of uh, sadness. Because, you know, I think we're all kind of built to, at some point, bear death, you know, the, of the people that are close to us, but not, not from that direction. I think a lot of people think they're invincible, yeah, especially if they're young. But um, I never imagined my life would take this course. You know, I, I mean, David was my best friend in many ways. I have Iran too, and they play very different roles. You know, Iran always made me laugh because he was a wonderful mimic. He is a wonderful mimic, and David. A lot of the things that he loved, like music and theater and things like that, were very much a part of who I am. And so we had a lot of fun together. And, and he always said he would look after me when I'm old. Mm -hmm. What shall I say? What, what happened uh, to David, exactly? Dave, well, he was a student at Tel Aviv University, and he was studying for his master's in the philosophy of education. How old? He was 27 just about to turn 28 and um, he was called to go to Miluim to when? the reserves and um, he was in a real quandary you see we don't know who these kids are behind the guns and he came to talk to me because he'd been to Miluim every year like every other Israeli kid has to do but he had not served in the occupied territories since his basic training and he came to see me because he'd also been part of this letter that the officers wrote that they wouldn't serve in the occupied territories. What, what year are we talking Two, about? We're talking about 2002. Okay. And he came and he said, look, you know, I don't know what to do. If I don't go, what will happen to my students? Because he was teaching philosophy to kids who were um, going to be inducted into the army. Is that the right thing to do? And if I don't go, what happens to my soldiers? Because he was the officer. And if I go, I will treat people with dignity, and so will all my soldiers. You see, there's the quandary. 
we we don't give credit to who, who these kids are and what they go through and, and what we make our children do. Right. And I, I was filled with a sense of dread and it was a very dangerous time then. And um, But he went. It's the height of the Second Intifada, if I'm More not mistaken. More or less, yes. And um, actually, I really understood this whole dilemma that he had later on when I met a Palestinian at a meeting in Tel Aviv at the American Embassy where I was giving a talk. And he said, um, the day before your son was killed, I drove through that checkpoint and I saw this beautiful young boy. He was very tall, like one meter 93. You couldn't miss David. And he came to the car and he said, I want to see your papers. It's my duty. It's like paying income tax. I'll do it as fast as I can. And they got into a whole conversation and the next day, um, when he heard that David had been killed, this Palestinian man said, I was so sorry. Do you see that's the essence of everything that I do with my life since then, is the recognition of the humanity on the other side. Mm -hmm. So, but w what happened in 2002? He was involved in a, uh, in a mission where he... He was guarding a checkpoint, which was a political checkpoint. They removed it the very next day. Mm. And it never put it back. So was that about uh, security? Yeah. I have my doubts. And um, a Palestinian sniper killed him along with uh, another six soldiers and three civilians. I see. From, from uh, like he was sitting he in was, a building? He was up on a hill and uh -huh. they were down in a valley, which was a crazy idea in the first place. Right. David had gone to, the, to all the powers that be to say that this is insane and they don't have the right equipment and that they would be sitting ducks. This he told me the day before when really? I spoke to him. Yes. And, and, and uh, what happened to the sniper? It took a couple of years and they caught him by chance. And he's in jail now. Um, Still? This, yes. Um, there was a whole talk about releasing him when they released um, Gilad Chalit in the prisoner exchange. Yes. But that was a mistake. But I really, this is all that has to do with testing to see if you mean what you say. Because, you know, you can walk around the world, talk about peace and shalom and salam and rainbows and flowers and bad poetry. But do you mean it? What do you mean? I don't follow. What well, was the mistake? The mistake, firstly, the television made a mistake because they didn't release Thaya. That's never the man uh -huh. who killed David. And secondly, um, it was this test to see if I mean what I say. Because I had been um, supporting the family of Gilad Chalit for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And... I had said on television many times, you have to release the prisoners, you know, and... And, and people, of course, probably asked you, would, would you, you be willing to release yes. the so, killer of your son? And of course I said yes, but that was before I knew, you know, mm -hmm. before they announced on television. And then that was a real test for me. And I spent the whole weekend thinking about is it okay if they release Thaya? Just to make it clear, there was a fake news, as they say, in well, which they reported yes, that he's going, that he to, be going released, to be released, but it wasn't the right, case. But right. you thought it was. Yes. Okay. Because, I mean, it was announced yeah. on TV. Sure. You know. And um, so then I wrote a poem. I mean, I'm no poet, that's true. But it was all because I had to get something out 
about what is it, you know, and I said that David and I had always talked about the sanctity of human life. And um, if this boy was going to come home to his mother, who for the first time I saw smiling on TV that night, then it would be worth everything, even if he wasn't coming home. And you it, still feel that? Yes. Today? Absolutely. And you actually, at some point, put yourself to the test. You tried to uh, get in touch with this Thayer, you said his name was? Yes. Thayer. You tried to actually get in touch with him. Well, I wrote a letter to the family. When? Um, after I heard he was captured, because it took a couple of years before he was captured, I really didn't know what to do with my life because I'd been traveling all over the world talking about peace and shalom and reconciliation and in Congress and uh, the House of Lords and I really thought I was a majorly big deal until they caught him. And that's the test to see if I mean what I say because um, I, I thought I could not do this work in integrity if I wasn't willing to walk the talk. So um took me several months of not sleeping. And then I wrote a letter to the family of Thaya. And it was delivered by two um, Palestinians from our group. And the family, of course, were very shocked, as you can imagine. But they said if everybody would sign on this, there would be peace. And of course, me, who has no patience whatsoever, expects to get a letter back the next day. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and of course, the whole idea of reconciliation, it's not instant. It can take forever and it can never happen. And I waited and waited and waited. But the good thing was that I'd made this step. So it opened up for me to go back to work. It was like a question of not being a victim anymore. Mm-hmm. I know that's a hard thing to understand. But once I wrote the letter, I was no longer a victim which gave me the freedom to continue with the work. And we went back to South Africa, where I come from, obviously. Can't miss my accent, although the Americans think I'm British, <laughs> which is really funny. <laughs> to fucking, them, every Fucking Americans. <laughs> to them, everyone, everyone and the is Americans, British. And, no, <laughs> and the British are horrified when they hear me. So um, we went to South Africa to look at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and to see what lessons we could learn. Two filmmakers came to talk to me and said, let's do this documentary. And I was also very much in the point of looking for the meaning of forgiving. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in the least bit religious, and I asked uh, rabbis and imams and the Archbishop of Canterbury and the chief rabbi of London, what's your definition of forgiving? And it was really quite... Quite a quest. Banal. <laughs> Their answers were, well, you see, but that's not fair on my part. Because many people come to forgiving through their religion. But um, this was not something that was meaningful for me. But I'd met a woman at a conference in Italy called June Fauri. She became my immediate sister. She'd lost her daughter um, during the apartheid days. And the daughter was, she was white. Afrikaans, which mm-hmm. would make you believe that she was part of the apartheid system. But she'd gone to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and she said to the people who killed her daughter, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know what she meant. 
So I went to meet her. She's part of this whole film that we made. And she said, I said, what is your definition of forgiving? And she said, forgiving is giving up your just right to revenge. And um, this whole process is not something that's stagnant. It moves all the time. And um, she then introduced me to the man who actually sent the people to kill her daughter. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to meet this monster. And he turns out to be the most extraordinary man. And he says, by her forgiving me, she released me from the prison of my inhumanity. That's quite an extraordinary statement. And I, then I came back to Israel thinking, what am I going to do with all of this now? And we showed the film all over the What's world. What's the name of the film? One Day After Peace. And we didn't know, I, I really didn't know what to do, you know, because coming back, I knew that I wanted to meet with Thaya, but I didn't know how to do this because everything was in the way, you know, like, would the Minister of Justice let me get in, the police, do I have a, a person who can be the mediator, every excuse. And what do you want? Well, that's that I haven't even got there yet. Right. <laughs> the point is that the person that was in the way was me, obviously. Uh -huh. This is not an easy thing to do. It's fraught with all kinds of, of doubts in many ways, you know. And then um, I went to the Minister of Justice because when I realized that it's me, and she gave me permission. And then um, I wanted Basama Ramin who's the man, a Palestinian man, who I travel with all over the world, except now that you Americans in your great wisdom have not given him a, a, a visa after he's been there for like 10 times with me as a guest of Congress, of USIP, of USAID, of the most prestigious people in America. And we're fighting this and I hope it will work out. But Bassam has a story in, of his, in his own right as most of the people in the parent circle, you could make a film about anybody in the parent circle. They are so extraordinary. And Basam um, was born in a cave near Hebron and grew up. And when he was about, he had polio as a child, so he limps rather badly. And when he was about 14, he joined a group of kids who used to put the Palestinian flag up to annoy the soldiers in their village. And at some point, um, they found a cache of wep weapons from um, a cache of weapons from probably the the Turkish times. You know, old weapons. They didn't have a clue how to use them, but they threw them at a tank, and they were caught. And he went to jail for seven years. Mm -hmm. And during his time in jail, he saw some films about the Holocaust. And something happened to him. It, it created in him an understanding of why so much. What is this DNA of fear that the Jews walk around with? And, and is it partly creating behavioral patterns? But also probably he saw the humanity in the other side, as you described well, of before. Course. Well, of course. And he also made friends with his jailer. I'm not going to tell his story. You need to invite him yeah, definitely. to tell his That's own story. Yeah, definitely. That's what I wanted to, to, to and, tell you. But what, but what did happen was um, he started Combatants for Peace, which is a wonderful organization. And then we, in our great wisdom, killed his 10-year-old daughter. A soldier killed his 10-year-old daughter as she was coming out of school. There was nothing going on there. And now, um, 
I know I'm not giving you much room to ask questions, but <laughs> I know it's just, okay. Just about the letter. What, what but I think we'll get to the letter. Yeah. But okay. it's really, you know, everything is kind of old news because yes. so much has happened since then. Right. And my whole life is so different. And I'm grateful for many of the wonderful people who invited me, who I've met along the way. And, and you know, that seems to be a part that is almost not a part of me anymore. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. sounds strange. But he wrote the letter back to me after three years in which he said I was mad and I should stay away from his family and that he killed 10 people to free Palestine. But actually I knew that when he was a small child, this his parents had told the two Palestinians that took the letter. When he was a small child, he saw his uncle very violently killed by the Israeli army. And then he lost two uncles in the second uprising in the Intifada. So he went on a path of revenge. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that was actually when I got that letter was when I felt very free to continue to work. But what do you say to the people who, after hearing the story, might say there is naiveness in your approach because you're fighting the most, I guess, like you said, most primal um, aspects of being a human, right? By, by, by not being uh, searching for revenge. Whereas he is, as in his response, this is as primal as it gets. So it's two different worlds clashing. So putting this behind you and continuing with your approach might seem to some as naive. Well, I think whatever else you might accuse me of, naivety is not one thing. And um, I think I was very influenced by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and my whole... Um, upbringing in South Africa, being in the anti-apartheid movement, I certainly, um, yes, I understand that people have this um, immediate reaction of revenge. But there is no revenge. What would I not do? I promise you I would hang from the balcony of your apartment if I could spend one more minute with David. So, But I'm not anywhere near there because I understand that whatever I can do, because David was also all about education, You know, I I found some letters that he'd written to Oxford University to go and do his doctorate there. So um, it's not a part of who I am. The anger was not so much at Sire um, because my anger was the fact that we were there in the very first place and that they put a checkpoint where there never should have been a checkpoint. And I had a huge fight with the army. You know, one thing about Israel is you can change things if you want, if you're crazy enough, and I'm crazy. <laughs> and I, they gave us a report after a year, and um, the report was total bullshit. You know, it had nothing to do with the actual incident. And Iran, my other son, was so upset about this, and we thought we have to do something. And... Um, I got two investigative journalists, Ronen Bergman, who's a very well-known guy. Was on our show just yeah. a couple of episodes ago. I asked him to look into this whole thing and, and give us the real facts about what happened because I'd also met some of the soldiers that had survived and they told us a completely different story from what was in the report. You don't fight with the army normally, but mm-hmm. you know, when you think you're right, you don't have to give up either. So, um, 
Were there uh, fruits when, to that, to the fight with the army? Were there what? Were there fruits to it? Oh, Did yes, it, there were. Yeah? You see, because what happened was when we got the report and when I heard that it was bullshit and Ronen Bergman gave me the proper report, which was going to be in Yediota Honot, the main newspaper at the time, in seven Sheva Yamim, seven days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's their um, weekend edition. Yes, and it was actually more or less Shavuot, like it is now. And um, I took the paper. I asked, I called the Ramatko chief of staff and got his secretary and asked for an appointment that all the families from this event want to bring the report back because it's not accurate. And we want to give it to the chief of staff. So, of course, they messed around and they sent all kinds of officers to talk to me. And then I said, no, no. I also gave it to Carmela Menasha, who's one of the most famous journalists. Covering the military. Yes, and also because I had a PR officer, I knew what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know. And she said, look, if he doesn't give you an appointment by 10 o'clock, I will announce it and that will bring the, all the media from all over Israel, which is exactly what happened. And then um, I told the secretary, we're coming to stand outside the chief of staff building um, and we'll just wait for the appointment when it suits him, we'll come in. And then, of course, we arrived and um, they kept coming out and offering us drinks and would we come in because it's hot. But, of course, we knew the minute we went inside, we would not be able to get to the media. So I said, no, thank you very much. We'll sit outside and wait until the chief of staff is ready to see us. At about 7 o'clock, he drove by in his car, like we should think he's gone home. And I sent my friend to go and bring a bottle of whiskey and feed the dog. And I said, we'll stay here until he lets us in. And somewhere around about 11 o'clock at night, all the lights went on and they allowed us in to meet him. And it was in those days, Bogi Ayelon, who was the chief of staff, and he said, you people don't know anything about reports. I said, you don't need to go to West Point to understand that this is not true. Take the second opinion and get back to us, you know, and nobody speaks to him like that. But when you think you're right, it's not a matter of being vain or, or anything like that. It means that you understand what you want and you... Conviction. So, um, it took a week and he called all the officers concerned who'd given the report to come and... Um, uh, um, to come to a meeting on the Friday and all of us came and I have the letter which I wrote, you know, which was saying we're not in a vendetta against the army but we want the truth to come out. And he actually reopened the whole um, report, he sent somebody, um, a wonderful man who's now in um, the Labour Party, to a general to do the report again. And he was so um, empathetic and so wonderful and, and I I can't tell you how much I appreciated all the work that they did. And um, also Ronnie Baron, who in those days was in the Knesset in the Parliament, uh, asked a question in Parliament and they changed the law so that you have to get your report within a month. And what about actual military um, 
strategies? Did something actually change in the military thanks to this report? Well, the only thing that changes is that you get a report now. You don't have to wait for like a year or mm -hmm. sometimes even longer while they mess around creating all kinds mm -hmm. of things in the hope that you'll forget. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, uh, you know, growing up in South Africa and, and visiting the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Conference, and I mean, I imagine that that was very impactful on you because you saw two sides of a conflict that, that engaged in, uh, in killing, being able to reconcile with one another, a murderer looking at the, you know, family members of, of one of his victims and saying, you know, I, I was released from, as you described before, that's, that's a very strong moment. But I want to, from your experiences in South Africa, a lot of people draw, draw a parallel between what's happening in Israel and what happened in South Africa. And I wonder if you have, if you can speak to that and if you see those similarities or if you disagree with that. And what we, can we learn from the South African? Well, that's a really big question. I, I don't like the word apartheid because I think people don't really understand what that is. I have to say that freedom of movement, in my opinion, is a basic human right. And the Palestinians do not have freedom of movement. Mm -hmm. And um, there are many things that are similar but many things that have nothing to do with what happened in South Africa. But I will say that um, the conditions that are created in places like Hebron make me very ashamed of being Jewish sometimes. When you see a mass of settlers um, taking control of streets and treating the children the way they do, that frightens me. I never saw any title deeds from God to say that they could stay there. What I am saying is that it's so sad to see what's happening and also the fact that, that most people don't want to know what's happening. Most Israelis have no idea. You know, we run a lot of uh, workshops in the parent circle and um, you bring people who think they're liberal as well as people who are completely, um, I hate all these labels, left, right, whatever, but they're so um, moved when they actually get to the point where they understand what the daily life of a Palestinian is like. And I think that, you know, I always say that one Palestinian killed my son, not the whole Palestinian nation. Mm -hmm. And that's what led me to think that if we can't get to this point of recognizing that the occupation is also affecting the moral fiber of Israel. You cannot occupy a country for more than 50 years and imagine that all those people would not come back with scars of what they had done. You know, I was watching a film yesterday on uh, the 73 war evidence given by soldiers who'd been mainly, mainly in tanks. And I thought to myself, is it anything, it's not even weird that they should be behaving in the way that they are from what they've been through. People don't understand the consequences of war. Mm -hmm. So what can we learn from South Africa to, well, if we want to change, change reality here? Listen, South Africa is not Israel. Firstly, um, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was nothing about forgiving, by the way. It was about if you told the truth, you'd get amnesty. But it's not the same religion 
-hmm. There there was the two religions of Christianity. It's a different culture. It's a different way of looking at things. We can't say that South Africa is Israel. It's not. Right. We have to have our own Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But if we don't, we'll just have another ceasefire until the next time. And so what that looks like, we tried in the parents' circle to work with some academics to see what they would say. But um, there's a problem with academics who don't work on the ground. It's like quoting other academics. And, and I didn't see anything in what they prepared that had any, any insights that were particularly Israeli and Palestinian. Mm-hmm. Now, with the uh, alternative ceremony that you guys set up here in Tel Aviv, actually, um, you see a lot of, uh, of flack. You get a lot of, of criticism, and much of it is uh, beyond the, the, the boundaries of, uh, I mean, I think acceptable. You see talkbacks online, and the ways people react to it is very uh, vicious and violent. And, you know, I, I mean, while someone might not agree with it or not, I, I don't think that's a, that's a way to react to it. But, I mean, you, it, that must affect you and the people working in the parent circle in, in a way to see that kind of reaction from such a large po- part of the population. So I want to ask you about that. Let's not be gentle about it. They are, you are hated by a, a big sum, yeah. I think, in Israeli society. Yeah, that's it, the sad truth. Like. So, Pure hate. Yeah, it is pure hatred. So I want to ask you about that, and I also want to maybe ask you to speak about the challenges you face with the Israeli government when setting up this ceremony. Well, actually, you know, you get used to the talkbacks. In the beginning, I was quite shocked that people had the chutzpah to say what they did to me. But I got death threats and all kinds of things like that. But I'm really, you know, it's beyond that. It's sad to think that people are... When I watched last year, not this year, but last year, they threw bags of urine at, and spat at us. And, you know, they were so angry, draped in Israeli flags. And I thought to myself, I'm just sad I can't talk to you because you have to talk to people who don't agree with you. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, they become more radical. Mm-hmm. But the police were in the way and they wouldn't let us anywhere near them. So this year... Um, Avigdor Lieberman, the Minister of Defense, in his great wisdom, decided not to allow 200 Palestinians to come uh, to the ceremony. Now, think about it. 200 Palestinians who also lost children and immediate family members want to come together with Israelis to say stop the violence. Is that a pernicious, dangerous thing? I don't know. Some people are frightened of peacemakers. So... um, I, he, but the reason that, Li, that Lieberman gave was that it's offensive to other bereaved parents. Mm-hmm. So I asked if we're second-class bereaved parents, and um, I don't see that we have the right to interfere with any other family on how they wish to commemorate their child or the person that they lost. I would never interfere with any other bereaved parent. It's my right to commemorate David in the way that I think is appropriate. And I couldn't think of anything more appropriate than two sides talking about peace and reconciliation. So we went to the High Court Hmm. and we won. (laughs) And I might say that for me that was a very joyous occasion because that's the High Court is the last bastion of democracy. Mm -hmm. And it was very important for us, this decision. What he'll do to us next year, I don't know. 
Mm-hmm. But this is kind of um, a part of a trend. Barilan University would not allow me in to talk about reconciliation with the Palestinian partner. It's another battle that we have to start fighting now. Um, are, are, I don't expect everybody to agree with me. Yeah. I just want to respect them and have them respect me. I will listen to the devil. Yeah. I mean, I, I, full disclosure, I, I probably would, uh, would, uh, would differ for, from you on a lot of things, but I think that... Um, I think I picked that up already. Yeah, but I think, but I think that it is. <laughs> You're an open book. <laughs> I guess, I guess so. But I think that it is, it is imperative to any kind of progress and any kind of um, civil society to have to be able to conduct civil discourse. And you know, I don't think I don't see any problem with holding a, a ceremony where I think people the, talk. The, I, I do have a question, yeah. specific question about the 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 issue that that uh, Lieberman brought up, and I'm wondering if that certain family members, and I'm really ignorant about this issue, so I'm asking not you know in any way to try to goad you into something or anything like oh, that. Motik. I'm asking greater if, guys than you have tried to goad me into things, <laughs> but, I'm, think. but I'm not. I'm trying to. I'm just wondering if there are any family members that were family members of of uh, perpetrators for example what are what firstly you said terrorists before yeah. we started the program yeah tell me what your definition of a terrorist is may i yeah you want to no, palestinians no he's the one that doesn't okay. agree with me so come on no i don't i don't not agree with you on everything <laughs> i agree i don't i probably don't agree with you on on certain things but uh, uh I'm using the, the the term perpetrator because I am somewhat non-confrontational, but I'll say terrorist. I think that, you know, someone who obviously, you know, puts a, a suicide belt and goes into a cafe and blows up innocence is a... Or I think stabs, we both agree. Or stabs or attacks physically. Right, we'll go into the stabbing afterwards, okay? Oh, yeah. But firstly, it's unlikely that somebody who blew themselves up would join the parent circle because they did. Well, no, I'm so, saying family the parents, members. The parents. Okay, yeah. so I can only say one thing. Mm-hmm. If the parents are aligned with the message of the parent circle, which is? If, which is reconciliation. If they see that any future peace agreement has to have a framework for a reconciliation process as an integral part, if they are against violence... Mm-hmm. then of course I would want them to be in the parent circle. What kind of, that's a noble example. But I also would ask you, um, if you think about it, who was Mandela? Mandela sat in jail for 27 years. He had blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. Look at the Irish prisoners who were let out on Good Friday on that agreement. Mm-hmm. They were not exactly innocent. And so if you think about it today, some of those prisoners that were in, in uh, Belfast are the biggest peacemakers in the world. I've met them. Mm-hmm. But so people can change. If I didn't believe that, why on earth would I be in this organization? I could sit at home and knit sweaters. But Robbie, let's, let's knit. start from the very basic. Do you agree that there's a difference between your son and, his, and another um, soldiers who died uh, during being occupiers or whatever, and Palestinians who blow themselves up in the market. You see a difference between them, or you think they are both fighters for their cause? I'm not Palestinian, okay? Okay. I'm Israeli. I love this country. I think I have paid a very high price to say the things that I say. I don't believe in violence. Look, I was watching 
um, what happened in Gaza this week, last week. Yes. And I was thinking to myself how leaders manipulate people. And I was thinking to myself, if I was a young soldier standing near um, watching 20,000 people come towards me, um, looking quite violent, what would I do? So please, there's no black and white in this whole story. It's a lot of gray, but what we are doing is not working. And so we have to find another way. It cannot go on like this. Also, we get to share this land with graves. What else will we have? How many more families have to experience this? And, and I will do whatever I can, and that's not coming from any kind of naive point of view. I look at my grandchildren, and you know, I have a grandson of 16, and I keep thinking, I wish he was better at basketball than he is, because then maybe he won't have to go to the army. It's got to that point. And that he had to wear glasses, I was delighted. Yeah. Think about how insane that is. I think every, like most mothers today think that. Yes, well, but that's the point. Yeah. The point is that the army, you know, it's not this holy cow. Mothers are terrified to send their children, of all mothers, Believe me that Palestinian and Israeli mothers who've lost children suffer the same pain. There's no difference. I don't care what you see on TV or what you think you know. Because 90% of Israelis have never met a Palestinian mother or really spoken to her or heard her story. So can you tell me how many Robbies are there in the other side? Because I think that the, the difference between us when you say we're not in the same place, the thing is, you know, there's also a generation gap. And to us, it's just a question that I think uh, you're hopeful. Whereas Jesus, I, what, I hope you haven't whereas, given up hope. Whereas we're not, no, I think we're not a hopeful generation. You know, I never we grew had up, any. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I will say that again. I said I never had any, but I'm kidding. <laughs> we're not a hopeful generation, I think, you know. Okay, so you see, but, the thing is, but, I don't think you can give up hope. Right. Because if you do, you might as well pack your bag and push off. Why are you staying here? You know, I mean, yes, life is very comfortable for Israelis. That's true. Yep. Okay, but I can't see, you know, I look at my grandson and I think to myself, I cannot give up. I can't afford to give up hope. I can't afford to stop working towards, because I believe a miracle happened in South Africa. That's how weird it is. I mean, South Africa is certainly not some garden of Eden now, and it will take time. Yeah. I told you right in the beginning, reconciliation, not instant. But at least something happened there to change things. And if you think back, think back to Sadat coming to Israel. I remember sitting with my two little boys on the bed and looking at the television and thinking, thank God they won't have to go to the army now. And then when Hussein came here, who would have believed that there would be a ceasefire, I don't call it peace, a ceasefire between yeah. us and Egypt and Jordan. So why give up hope? To us, it's, it's you know, it's so long ago we yeah. were barely, so Plus, that we have went, nothing to so hold on. So that went back and got assassinated. And the peace, like you said, is, well, is you a might ceasefire. Well, you know, then um, it might be a good idea to really read some history about what happened and other places that yeah. have managed to survive the most terrible. You see, everybody yeah. thinks their conflict is the worst conflict that can never be can never be cured. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's maybe talk a little bit about uh, the. Is there anything? No, no, no. no. The book it's that good. like you're writing a book. 
<laughs> Can we talk about it? Yes, of course. I mean, it's not a secret. Okay. I've been wanting to do this for a very long time because um, I can't even begin to tell you the extraordinary um, stories that I have to tell of of uh, um, a hip hop concert in in uh, San Francisco with Michael Franti, if you know who that is. He, I, I don't. But he's a very famous, dreadlocked, very tall. Um, he came to Israel and invited me to come to Golden Gate Park uh-huh. together with a Palestinian partner. And it's like a hip-hop concert that he gives on 9-11. And there must have been 60,000 people there to talk about Tina Braun, who invited me to come, I think, six times to Women in the World. I don't know if you know who Tina Braun is. Nope, nope. You see, you're the wrong generation. <laughs> She's a very famous editor who created, uh, really created Vanity Fair and The Daily Beast. Okay, okay. She has events called Women in the World. And I was in San Diego because I won something called Women Peacemakers, where you stay for nine weeks in San Diego. Not a punishment, I must say. Uh-huh. <laughs> and... Um, Tina Brown was there in a place called the Golden Door. I don't know if you've heard of the Golden Door, but it's like a a spa that costs like $1,000 or something a night. And as you come in, it's got on the wall. If you're coming in your private plane, let us know in advance. (laughs) So um, I met her and I met Barbara Streisand and all these women. Uh And then she started to invite me. She invited me to San Antonio where Eva... Who's the woman that desperate housewife, Eva something or other? And I'm sorry, I'm bad at names. And Gloria Steinem and people, amazing mm. people were there that I met. And then she invited me to Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, um, we stayed in this hotel on Rodeo Drive. All that was missing was Richard Gere. <laughs> and then um, after that, she invited us to come to New York, and I said, I'm not coming unless I can bring a Palestinian partner. And Bushra came with me. Bushra and herself, I mean, I don't know how much time we have to talk here. Not, none. None? Yeah, that's. So, we need to wrap things up. But, the, but, uh, but we can read it in your book, and we'd love to have you after the book is published. <laughs> and, uh, but, but just tell us a little bit about the book, so it'll be about all the things you experienced? And it's really about... Firstly, I'm doing it through letters to David because then it won't be so... What's the word? Arrogant, mm-hmm. maybe. You know, I don't want it to be that. But I also don't want it to be heavy. I want it to have some humor and also for people to get that message that reconciliation is possible. I, do you I have would, a name? Sorry, do you have a name for the book yet? No, you, Not yet. can you think of a name? Letters to David. No, that's boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'll give up my writing. Uh, um, so I wanted to finish off with, um, well, first of all, I, I want to say that I think that, you know, regardless of any disagreement, I think that your your aims and your goals are to be commended because I don't think that there anybody can argue that there's any, I don't know, uh, uh, misdirection there. I mean, striving for peace is admirable. But I wanna, I wanna finish with you know. I, I love the butt. There's always a butt. <laughs> no, no, yes. no, not a butt okay. in that way. A butt okay. in a different way. This is a good butt. Okay. <laughs> like, a, like Kim Kardashian's butt. So, <laughs> so I wanna. Well, from your gazook, as I said. <laughs> okay. So I wanna, I wanted to finish maybe with something that w- you know 
that ties into what brought you to this place, which is uh, sad on one on one hand, but maybe we can make something positive out of it. If you could leave us with one memory you have of David that you would want to, I don't know, live on. And share. Well, it's not something dramatic. Yeah. But, you know, he used to play the French horn. Mm-hmm. And actually, I just wrote that letter this morning with the part about India, but um, it was uh, quite annoying because it's very noisy <laughs> and the neighbors hated us and they used to throw stones through the window. <laughs> so he sat in his, in a cupboard. You know, he was a very ambitious character. Um, he was like Telmer Yelin and he wanted to do conducting and he covered himself in his underpants with a towel and he used to sit in the cupboard and practice like for four to five hours on the bloody um, Mozart horn concerto which even I had enough, I must say. <laughs> but um, that was the type of person he was. He was full of love, and, and he loved whiskey, which runs in the family. So what can I tell you? You know, it's that's, I think that that is, that's, that's amazing. That's, <laughs> yeah. No, because that really, I think that captures him. Everything, yeah. A whiskey, okay. lo- a whiskey lover and a French horn every, enthusiast. Every year when we go to the cemetery, yeah. which is not very um, acceptable maybe to certain people, we bring a bottle of whiskey on the day that he was killed. Everybody has a glass of whiskey and we drink to David. That's beautiful. Robbie, thank you so much for coming. If someone wants to uh, help, yes. where do they go? What do they do? You know, we have an American friend's of the parent circle, but I would suggest that they open the website. Which is? www.theparentscircle.org. And they can find in English, Hebrew, or Arabic. Um, it's quite looks quite good now, it was a pretty new website. Awesome, so we'll put some, some links. Thank and you. And you're, you're online, uh, you have Twitter, or Facebook, something? We have Facebook. Okay. Um, mm. It's called the crack in the wall or um, parent circle. If they type a parent circle. Great. Before we go, Uh, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal, uh, jewishjournal.com. They are a news source, uh, as you know, in uh, L.A. for uh, news in general and Jewish news uh, specifically. Uh, So check them out, jewishjournal.com. And uh, not unlike you, we accept donations. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you guys want to help us out, we do it on our spare time. Just go to uh, 2NJB.com slash donate and throw some money at us. Robbie, Summer, by the way, one yes. of the things that we do do are we travel extensively all over the world. And if people want to invite us to come and talk in their communities, we'd be delighted to do that. So that you can also do through the website. Okay. Robbie, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. It's been inspiring. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thanks. Toda.